Many of you know the name Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a poet, he was an author, he was a cultural critic, and he was a Germanic 19th century, perhaps the most strident atheist of the century. He's most famous for saying, God is dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? the murderers of all murderers, what was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? But far from being an atheist who would celebrate the discarding of a belief in God like some sort of uh, conqueror that vanquishes his foe, from Nietzsche's perspective, the loss of belief in God in his day was a thing to lament. Not that he was trying to recover it, but because he realized in the absence of a belief in God, where would we find any idea of the sacred? What would we do to atone, not for guilt that had any basis in fact, but for guilt that we still felt? And in that, he had great concern because he knew that there was nothing yet available to replace what God had once been for people like him and for those in his day. Which makes it all the more ironic that I'm going to quote him in another way here at the beginning of a series of sermons on an entirely new book, and that is the book of Daniel, written in a very different moment from the season in which we've just come out of listening to First Peter, and yet in some ways having a great deal of resonance between that day and the day that Daniel speaks of. But there was something that Friedrich Nietzsche said in another setting that while having no religious connotation to it at all, still spoke something very true, something I think that you and I would nod at whether we knew anything about Nietzsche or not. And it's what he says this, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted, in the long run, something which has made life living. A long obedience in the same direction. A perseverance on a particular trajectory with a certain hope and a certain aspiration. Who of us could argue with what sounds like wisdom? That idea, I believe, applies not only to the book of Daniel but to the first chapter of Daniel that we're going to listen to today. Because you're about to hear, chapter 1 of the book of Daniel both begins with a chronological marker. The beginning of when Daniel comes on the scene and how he persists into what would be the third year of the reign of Cyrus of Persia. And you may wonder, why would the one who edited this whole book together decide to put those two chronological markers at the beginning of the chapter? And that's because it's out to tell us something about Daniel, that his life spanned seven decades of faithfulness, seven decades of a long obedience in the same direction. I speak to you this week right on the cusp of my 49th birthday. And I believe that uh, coming in the mail this week is my certificate of maturity. Or so the online service said I would get it this week. And yet I know at this point in my life with more days behind me than are ahead of me, the question that always comes up to people of a certain age like mine is, 
What will sustain me in my faithfulness for the rest of my days? What will allow me to walk in a long obedience in the same direction? It is to believe one thing, that God is there. And Daniel is going to help us grapple with that in the many ways in that which is true. And we're going to hear in three ways that God is with us, that God is there. That he's there in the darkness, he's there in the struggle, and he's there in a mystery. So let's listen to Daniel chapter 1 and hear how God is there. Our central text for today is found in Daniel 1, 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpentaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, four youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine, and they were to drink and gave them vegetables. 
And as for these four youths, God gave their learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Ordinarily, worship services and sermons are there to encourage us, to uplift us in certain ways. But I'd like to begin actually by asking you a rhetorical question. And that is to, I want you to imagine what has been in your life so far the worst day you've ever known. Whatever that day was, it may have been someone that you lost. It may have been a dream that ended for you. For all I know, your worst day has happened that it is so recent and so fresh and has happened in this season that you're still wondering if the feel of that will ever go away. But whatever that day has been, what you felt or what you're feeling as if everything has been ripped from you that's good. That you feel in some ways like you've been sent into a kind of exile at a remove and at a great deal of departure from anything that's good. The book of Daniel begins and is in a season that you might say is Israel's bleakest season. What has befallen them is something that's not just a metaphorical exile, it's a real exile. That what Isaiah had warned centuries earlier has now come to pass. What had begun in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century by the Assyrian kingdom now was befalling the southern kingdoms of Israel, Judah, by the Babylonian kingdom in the 7th century. And what Babylon has done in that season is has taken away the very land of the people of God and carted away some of its most impressive people back unto its own world. And so you hear there in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Everything that they knew, everything that was familiar, everything that gave them joy, everything that led them to, to stand in the city square and say, this is the day that the Lord has made, all of that was ripped from them, taken out from beneath their feet. And they're in a world of darkness. And they know not if or when it will ever end. But what happens right on the cusp, right after that, is something that would have been a surprising thing to hear for those who first heard Daniel's account. There is a phrase that they would hear that would be surprising to them, that would make them pay attention. And it accounts for what, what explains why Israel, why Judah has fallen into the hands of a despot 
an imperialist like Babylon. And you hear that in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of God. That's the first of three times you're going to hear in chapter 1 an instance in which Daniel means to tell us that the Lord gave. That the Lord was at work. That the Lord did something. That, that Judah wasn't merely overpowered by a more robust Babylonian force, but that the Lord had given his people into exile. That the darkness that now had enshrouded them was at the hand of God himself. But what Daniel is out to tell us there in this first instance of hearing how God gives is that God is there in their darkness. However you might define their darkness. He was not just a witness to it. He was not just a passive bystander in its presence. He was involved in it. He was there in it. The question is, though, why would he do that? Why would he give this people, who the people of his own possession, why would he give this land that was for them, meant to be flowing with milk and honey, meant to be a base of operations in which his people would then bless all peoples, why would he do that? And the simple answer, he's out to fulfill his own promise. Remember, as we've already hearkened to Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 39, he warns King Hezekiah of Judah in that season that he has come to trust in a power that ought not be trusted. And that instead, he ought to trust in the providence and the power of the Lord. And so he warns Hezekiah, if they continue in this way, this is what will befall Isaiah. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Why would Daniel say that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into, Judah's, into Babylon's hand? Because that's what he had promised. They had come to trust in what was not worthy of their trust. Both king and country alike had drifted had drifted from their first love and drifted from their faith and God has given them over and they, they find themselves in their exile. But let's be really clear in saying that God is there in their darkness. Let's, let's make really sure what we're to infer from a, a connection like that because Daniel has the gift of a little bit of of time passing for him to connect the dots between what has befallen Israel and what was anticipated of Israel. He has that time. He has that luxury. And yet for Daniel to connect those dots is not for us in whatever darkness, whatever has been our worst day, that we have some sort of responsibility in the moment to connect those dots. If you just study the storyline of Job, you know what his three friends do at first, they know enough to be quiet. And then they start doing their own connecting the dots because the imagination abhors a vacuum. And they begin connecting dots that God later has to correct. It's nothing different from what Jesus himself has to do with his disciples. John chapter 9, they see a blind man and they say, which, of, which happened? Did this man sin or did his parents? And Jesus says, 
neither of those reasons work. Neither of the ways in which we're trying to connect the dots between cause and effect work. And therefore, inasmuch as Daniel is there to say unto us, a long obedience in the same direction rests on believing that God is there in your darkness. What's more operative is not figuring out what is God doing in that moment so much as to believe that he is there. That he is present. That he is with you. God is there in the darkness. And if there's anyone that might connect, or rather explain that sense with a great deal of poignancy in a modern register, it's something that I heard not so long ago in an interview between Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert. Anderson Cooper, at the time that he gave this interview, he had just lost his mother in death. But what he asks Stephen Colbert is actually about something that he's spoken of quite often and widely and that about, is about his own experience with grief when his own father and his own brothers, when Stephen Colbert was a young boy, died in a plane crash. And what he says about that experience, but more so about what he realized about that truth, is what I think helps you to understand that God is there in the darkness. You told an interviewer uh, that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Um, I remember you went on you went on to say uh, what what punishments of God are not gifts do you really believe that yes it's a gift to exist it's a gift to exist and with existence comes suffering there's no escaping that and I guess I'm either a Catholic or a Buddhist when I say those <laughs> things, because I've heard those from, from yeah. both traditions. But I didn't learn it that I was grateful for the thing I most wish hadn't happened, is that I realized it. Mm -hmm. Is that, and it's, a, it's an odd, oddly guilty feeling. Cause you it, don't, it doesn't mean you I don't are want, happy. I don't want it to have happened. I want it to not have happened. Right. But... If you are grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, um, yeah. not everybody is, right. and not, I'm not always, mm -hmm. um, but it's the most positive thing to do, then you have to be grateful for all of it. You, it's, you can't pick mm. and choose what you're grateful for. And then, so what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss. Well, that's true. Empathy. Which allows you to connect with that other person. Right. Which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being. If it's true that all humans suffer. Right. And so, at a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or with my children, is that I have some understanding that everybody is suffering. And however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them in a deep way that not only accepts that all of us suffer, but also then makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people. And that's, that's what I mean. Even in those few very poignant moments that brings the interviewer to tears and, and brings a pause uh, even to Stephen Colbert, there's so much to take in in just a few moments. It's, it's not as if he is, he is glad that what happened to him happened to him. He, he says as much. It's, it's not a thing that he considers to be a good thing. And yet, which of God's punishments are not good gifts? Which of God's 
bitter providences are not good gifts in what may flow from them who believe that in fact God is good and that he does, he lives in his heavens, he does as he pleases. A long obedience in the same direction is to believe that God is at work. And though none of us have access to some of the reasons why things befall us, why things happen, though those things feel very much like punishments. What both Daniel and Stephen Colbert are out to tell us is is that God is not absent. God is present. And He's there in the darkness. And the sooner and the more often that you and I can believe that He is there in the darkness, the more likely we will persevere in a long obedience in the same direction. That's that's not even the, the largest part or the largest point of this passage. God is there in the darkness. But he's also there in the struggle. And by that I mean where most of this chapter happens or occurs is in in the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not so much about geopolitical intrigue that this passage focuses on as an interpersonal moment where Daniel is out to face a choice. As we said, Nebuchadnezzar moves in on Israel, brings the temple to ashes, but then carts off what is essentially the brain trust of Israel. Uh, Just like the United States and the Soviet Union took all of those German rocket scientists into their respective cares that they might forge or wage a a space race. Babylon saw the the gift, the aptitudes, the skills, the sensibilities of those who were um, the cream of the crop of Israel, and so he takes them unto his own world, and he prepares to assimilate them into his life. A three-year plan of of preparing them with the the literature, the lore, the language of Babylon. That he might make use of what good they do for his own good ends. And and so Daniel and his three friends, we'll we'll call them henceforth in our study of Daniel the Fantastic Four. Uh, They are brought before the king and they are um, commissioned to a, a field of study in which they will acquaint themselves, and they will be assimilated into that world, and that will be their new normal. That will be what they're out to live for. And yet, inasmuch as they've been commissioned to learn everything they can about Babylon and Babylonian culture, that they might be of service to that people, there comes a point in which Daniel himself realizes that what's being asked of him is a bridge too far. That what is required of him is something that he must respectfully lean against. And it, and it comes down to, of all things, what they're served in the way of food. There is a royal diet presented them, rich food, rich wine. And for reasons that aren't absolutely clear, as you study the passage with, with any uh, kind of care, there comes a point which, which Daniel says, I, I can't eat that. I won't eat that. It is, it is more than what I'm willing to give myself to. It is, it is beyond what I'm willing to allow myself to be assimilated in the direction of. And what he's concerned about is being defiled. And that's not a word that you and I use very often, and if we do, we more chuckle about it because we, we wonder if that category even exists anymore because the whole idea of, of beauty and holiness is something that is passing from us in so long. But, but for Daniel, the idea of being defiled is, is to put anything in between him and his Lord that that communion might be interrupted, that to transgress something, some directive, some law, was, 
not about merely whether or not he violated the law for the law's own sake, but that he was creating some sort of distance between him and the Lord. To, to make it a little bit more familiar, every friendship you have, um, if you should be married, um, anyone that is dear to you in your family, there are certain things that you do, um, that you enjoy, and then there are certain things that you avoid, because if you were to walk down that road, it sort of begins to steal away that which you enjoy about the communion and the community that you have with one another, and you avoid it at all costs, because if you go there, if you violate that expectation, if you violate that preference, then, then something gets broken for a while, something is off, something has to be remedied, and that takes time, and that takes effort, so you avoid that. That's the idea of defilement. And again, it's not, it's not perfectly clear what is it about this food that Daniel thinks will defile him. It's, it, it's maybe not something about kosher because wine was never a thing that they would decide whether it was kosher or not. And, and there's no discussion about whether these, this food had in any way been sacrificed unto the Babylonian gods. Again, it's not clear. But whatever it is, whatever Daniel's reasons are, this assimilation that he's already going through, whatever was being asked of him to eat of this food was to him the potential for drifting so far from his God that he would forget him. That whatever that influence was and whatever it asked him to do was just too much. Do you ever wonder everything that's influencing you in these days? Do you ever consider what it is that you're taking into yourself, literally, and how through both subtlety and regularity it is shaping you. Um, doubtless, you or, or friends you know will from time to time will go online and they will say, I gotta, I gotta bug out of the grid for a while because I know what it's doing in me, I know what it's doing to me, I know what it's pulling out of me, and I don't like it. They're being shaped by what's influencing them, by what they're totally giving themselves to, and they realize something's got to change. And again, whatever it is that Daniel sees or Daniel perceives about the food that he's been given, he just can't give himself to it. There are some things he can't control. He can't move out of Babylon. He can't tell them not to call him by the Babylonian names that they're giving him. He can't um, push back against the, 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 the education or the role that they might give him. But whatever the food was, that he could say, I want something else. And what Daniel is out to tell us there is that God is with us in the struggle to be faithful. And the reason I know that is because it's the second instance in which you see the Lord gave something. He says there in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the side of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel goes to the chief of the eunuchs, says, I don't want to eat of this food. And at first that chief is admiring of his concern, but then he himself is concerned that if he feeds these three or four guys anything other than the royal food, that they're going to start to appear lean. And if, he's, if they start to appear lean, it's his head that's going to get lopped off. He'll go through his loss program in one fell swoop. And so what does Daniel do? He's a good problem solver. He realizes, just like we should realize, when it comes to being faithful, sometimes you've got to problem solve. Sometimes you've got you've to lean in to whatever it is that's leaning against you. And he, he contacts the steward, the one that would actually bring the food, and says, look, here's the deal. For 10 days, just feed us the vegetables. Just the vegetables and the water. The whole 30 diet, right? But let's do it for whole 10, right? And after 10 days, if we look any leaner than everybody else, then fine, we'll go back to the diet that is mandated for us. But just Trust me, the steward goes, the steward does what he asks, 
And 10 days later, they check. And sure enough, they're looking as healthy and as vital and as vibrant as everybody else, if not more so. And what we're meant to see there in verse 9 is not merely a sheer coincidence by the diet. He's not encouraging us all to become vegetarians. He's saying the Lord is at work and present to you and is there in the struggle. Friends, I know that sometimes when it comes to obedience unto the Lord, a long obedience or a short obedience, it's possible that you are tempted at times to think that God is there sort of tapping his toe like some sort of proctor at an exam, you know, waiting for you to show yourself, you know, um, apt and um, knowledgeable and competent. But what Daniel is out to show us in this moment, that God is with you there in the struggle. He is for you in the struggle. He's there to assist you in being faithful. He's not some schoolmarm making sure that you're doing what you should. He's there to assist you that you might walk in his way. He is with you in the darkness, and he is there in the struggle. And that's an important thing for you and I to know, because a lot of times, we don't really have to walk by faith. Life is just sort of life. Now, in this season, when we are pressed up against the wall in different ways, we're having to believe. But when it comes to the struggle, especially when it comes with the test of being obedient in ways that might risk being offensive, it's finally in those moments where you are learning to walk by faith and not by focus group. And the way you learn that is by believing that God is there in the struggle to be faithful. There's one last way that Daniel is out to show us what it will take to uh, walk in a long obedience in the same direction. Not only is he with us there in the darkness and there in the struggle, it's one other way too, and it all comes down to what happens three years after the assimilation program commences. They learn the lit, the lore, the language, they learn the culture, and then they have their qualifying exams, and then they come before the royal court to demonstrate their skill and their aptitude. And it says there in verse 17, as for these four youths, the fantastic four, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and they demonstrated more skill, more wisdom, and understanding than everyone else. Every time you hear the word gave, it's not just a turn of phrase. It's not just a verb that Daniel chooses because he can't find some other one. It's out to suggest that God is present in the moment. He's there not just to teach them something. This, this skill that they show Nebuchadnezzar's court is not something of their own free will. It's not something that their, their own natural gifting. This is meant to show us that God is with them there in something that's rather mysterious. Because when you think about it, they've been indoctrinated for three years by a king and a people who have not only no respect for who Israel is, but were happy to rock its world and to raise its um, temple to the ground and cart off its most beloved people. So why would God not only allow that to happen, but why would he prepare them, if you will, of greater service under that court. That's the mystery. But that's the lesson. That's the lesson for them. That's the lesson for us. That's the lesson for Israel and anyone those who would walk in the way of God. God 
is there in the mystery of even serving someone that you have a hard time respecting. Because look, in that moment, as in the moment to explain why God lets Jehoiakim get subdued and spanked by Nebuchadnezzar, it's out to fulfill a promise. What is the promise that God makes Israel? I'm going to bless you, that you'll be a blessing to all nations. And they're going to be a blessing even unto this nation. And it's what Jeremiah tells them, even when they go into exile. Seek the welfare of the city to which I send you, he says in Jeremiah 29. For in its welfare you will find your own welfare. What these Fantastic Four are doing is only what's been encoded into their lifeblood. It's what's prepared them for service. And the rest of the book of Daniel is going to explain why, in fact, they have been prepared in this very mundane experience of being about assimilated and learning their literature and the language and the lore. Friends, beloved, in how many ways is your life seemingly mundane, uh, fulfilling the basic tasks and responsibilities that are before you, but in how many ways is that preparing you for service you might never dream of? God is there in the darkness. He is there in the struggle. And he is there even in the mundane things that to us in the moment are a mystery, but only later start to make some kind of sense. God is there. And on the basis of that belief, we will walk in a long obedience in the same direction. Okay, look, let's, let's conclude in this way. It is natural to read a book like Daniel, and it will be for all of this fall that we consider this book to think of it as all about a rah-rah story about Daniel, that Daniel is our hero. I mean, obviously, they write a book about you and they name it after you, then maybe there's something to learn about you. And that's sure, to be sure, there will be things that we will discover about Daniel that we will have great respect for. And yet, have you not heard, have you not seen that he who is the main character, even here in Daniel 1, is not even Daniel himself, but the Lord who is Daniel's God. Daniel's name means God is my judge. And Daniel believes that and walks in that way. And therefore, for us to read Daniel is not mainly for us to look at Daniel and say, be like Daniel. Rather, it is to read Daniel like those who first read Daniel. We need one like Daniel to operate on our behalf. And we do. We have one like Daniel who knew that his God was with him in the darkness, in the struggle, and in the mystery. We had one who sweat drops of blood in a garden, whose father was with him in his darkness. We have one, we know one, who knew what it was like for God to attend to him in the struggle against everything that was causing to knock him off of his block. And we know one who is with him in the midst of what everybody considered a mystery, but which to him there was perfect clarity. His father was with him. The one we need is the one who follows after Daniel and yet who was far greater than Daniel. It is this Jesus in whose way we walk because in every way that he faced the darkness and faced the struggle and faced the mystery in the mundane, he was doing so that we might have him with us too. We have something more than just one whose name and whose life is bound within the pages of this narrative. 
we have one who is with us now and who will lead us in a long obedience in the same direction, believing as he did that God is there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.